0: This morning we're in the book of Amos, the minor prophet Amos, and as John mentioned and reminded you moments ago, we're in the season of Advent together, Christmas being soon upon us, and so we're spending this season together on Sunday mornings taking a look at the minor prophets, or some of them anyway, not all of them, and also you'll notice that each Sunday morning we'll be singing at least a part of one song, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Jesus. A good hymn, I mentioned this last week, and there's so much about Jesus that we do expect during Advent, but some of the most important parts of him are the parts that we don't expect. There's much of the unexpected Messiah that we get in the gospel that surprises us. And last week we saw from the book of Hosea that we don't expect God's heart to be all that it is for us. We don't expect that God's heart is broken in love for his people and that it is generous with forgiveness for His people, and that it's big with restoration for His people. We need to know those things. But at the same time, with all of, of that bigness of God's heart of love for His people, God is not the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky. There are other dimensions of Him as well that we need to see. And Amos, the prophet, has his own story. and It's a little different than Hosea's. So, young Christians, as you listen, I'll read this section, these three sections out of Amos' uh, prophecy. And you're going to notice there's something that God hates. What is it? What does God hate? Amos, beginning in chapter 3, I'll read these sections from chapters 3, 5, and 9. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. In chapter 5, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And from chapter 9, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, for I will give the command and I will shake the house of Israel Among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble, will reach the ground. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand, help us to recognize your good news in this um, prophetic word. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and give us hope in Jesus because that's your intent. Even as you call us out for the depths of sin in our hearts, Father, we pray that you would help us to turn to you and trust you for your grace and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In 1936, the Queen Mary launched for her maiden voyage from Southampton, England, This ship was, at the time, the largest ship on the ocean and certainly the largest passenger liner on the ocean. And it was a luxury liner for the rich and the powerful and the famous. And it spent years making transatlantic trips between England and the United States and other parts of the world. And then came World War II, and this massive ship was enlisted to help in the war effort And It was transformed from a luxury liner to a troop transport, and it transported thousands of troops back and forth across the ocean, back and forth across the ocean, around the world again and again and again. And after the war was over, it was returned to its luxury status and again continued to transport people around the world until the airlines became more prominent and it began to lose its favor against more modern amenities on other ships, and the Queen Mary was retired in 1967, three decades after its beginning, retired to Long Beach, California, and there it was converted to a tourist attraction. It's still there today, as far as I understand. I've never been there to see it, but it's still there today. And it's a tourist attraction, it's a museum, it's restaurants, it's a hotel, it's offices right there on the the coast of California. And at the time of converting this old, well-traveled ship into all of these different things, the smokestacks, the three enormous smokestacks were removed from the top of the ship in order to make way for removing scrap metal from down deep in the hull, and the smokestacks were laid on the, the dock in order to be repainted and then restored. But when they were laid on the dock, they crumbled and fell into a heap of rusty metal. There was nothing there anymore except for 30 coats of paint that had been slathered over these steel pipes for the decades. There was nothing left, only rust and dust. 30 coats of paint. Covered no substance at all. Now, 750 years before the birth of Christ, God called a no name shepherd from a no name town to go to a big name place to tell rich and powerful people that their outward actions were a covering for no substance at all, a covering for just rust and dust and garbage. Amos was that prophet. He had a name, Amos, and he was really no prophet at all. As he would admit later in his prophetic book, he was not even the son of a prophet. He was simply a shepherd and a fig tree farmer from a town called Tekoa, down south of Jerusalem, south of Bethlehem in Nowheresville, when God called him to go to Bethel, Bethel was a a town in Israel. Now you remember at this time, this is the same time as Hosea the prophet, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided. There was the kingdom of Judah in the south and what they called Israel in the north. Two tribes in the south and ten tribes in the north. Amos was coming from the south and he was going to the north to Bethel, a town in the northern kingdom of Israel, in order to prophesy. Bethel is a Hebrew word. It combines two words, Bait-El, El L being short for Elohim, God, Bait being the, the, the word for house. Bethel was the house of God, and it had a history among God's people. Abraham had camped there many centuries before. We read in Genesis, and Abraham's grandson Jacob built an altar there at Bethel, and even had a dream of a stairway in angels' Passing up and down between heaven and earth. That's where Bethel was. And now the northern kingdom gathered to worship there. Now, Hosea is preaching at the same time. Like I said, they're contemporaries, these two minor prophets. And Hosea was highlighting God's heart of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness for his wayward people. Amos, on the other hand, points to a different aspect of God God's insistence on justice. And righteousness among his people. His insistence that there be substance beneath any religious exterior. Amos shows us something about God and the coming Messiah that many, many do not expect, and it's this God hates religious expressions, expressions of religious devotion. That are not proven by acts of social compassion. God hates expressions of religious devotion that are not proven by acts of social compassion. Without such acts, such expressions are no better than chips of paint on rusty, dusty garbage. Amos knew that God was angry. Why? What makes God angry? When Amos arrived at at Bethel, these were his first words. He said, The Lord roars from Zion. He thunders from Jerusalem. Here was a prophet coming to Bethel, the town of worship for the northern kingdom. All these people would gather with their religious facade and come and do their religious things. And here comes a prophet. He says, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. What? What? Well, judgment against the nations. And Amos begins his prophecy. He says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. That's God's word to the people of Israel. For three sins of Damascus, even four, I won't turn back my wrath. Now, geographically speaking, Damascus is a neighbor to the north and east of Israel. And these Israelites, hearing this new prophet show up, they don't know who he is, some farmer from Tekoa. Who are you? But he has a good word for them that they actually probably like. God condemns the sins of Damascus, and the Israelites are saying, that's right. We like you. And then he goes on. For three sins of Gaza. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Gaza was a neighbor to the south. That's where the Philistines were from. And so these Israelites, are now they're even more on Amos' side. Yeah, that's right. Let's hear the sins of the Philistines. God's wrath will not turn back from them. And he goes on. For three sins of Tyre, for three sins of Edom, for three sins of Ammon, for three sins of Moab. And if they're doing the geography, they're realizing these are all of our neighbors. These are the people that form a circle around us. And then he says, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And now these Israelites must be getting a little bit nervous because the circle is complete and now it's beginning to tighten on them. Their brothers and sisters to the south, Judah, who had faithful kings, by the way, Israel did not. Even Judah with their faithful kings, they had their problems and God was not unaware of those problems. The circle of judgment is narrowing and then he turns on them. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. God is angry. What makes him angry? When his people presume upon his favor. That makes him angry. When his people presume upon his favor. Now, Jeroboam, too, was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom at this time. And Jeroboam had brought prosperity and security to Israel. In fact, God had provided it through him we read in Second Kings fourteen that the Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel was suffering, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam was not a godly man. He was the antithesis of that. He was opposed to God, and yet God used Jeroboam to save the Israelites because God loved his people. Now, the neighboring powers of Assyria and Egypt at the time were somewhat weakened, and so Israel happened to control the trade routes through their country, and they economically benefited from that, and they became wealthy. Jeroboam knew was a businessman. He knew how to make money, and he gained wealth for his country, at least for some of them who were there. Their hearts used a God-given blessing to turn away from God. Their worship at Bethel had become an empty ritual. They would check the box of religion and then go on and do what they pleased. Now, we have to recognize God does not oppose material prosperity. But material prosperity does not prove that God is pleased. Amos' audience at Bethel did not love God. And therefore, they did not love their neighbor. Here's some of what he says of them. He says, "...they sell the righteous for silver." and the needy for a pair of sandals. The needy for a pair of sandals. When, when a needy person who had little would have to borrow some money or borrow some food or whatever it was, they might give their pair of sandals as a pledge that I'll pay you back. And he's saying, look, they, you have their pair of sandals, and now you're just going to sell them off to slavery and keep their sandals. Really? Really? And he goes on, he says, they trample on the heads of the poor and deny justice to the oppressed. And he explains even further, he says, men use women for self-serving purposes. Some things just don't go away, do they? They tend to come back around from culture to culture to culture and make headlines even now. And he goes on, he says, they lie down on garments taken in pledge. Again, when... When a, 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 a loan was made from the poor, from the rich to the poor, a garment, a cloak would be given in pledge, I'll pay you back. And he's saying, y- you, you take their garments and you don't give them back to them at night. You're supposed to give them back at night. It may be all they have to stay warm, but you don't even do that. He says, they drink wine taken as fines. In other words, they fined the poor because of their little transgressions, then they use the money of the poor to, to buy wine and celebrate. It's just the most unrighteous thing that you could imagine. Their complete lack of social compassion betrayed the emptiness of their religious so-called devotion. But God says, no presumption from my people. Chapter 3, hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. Being the recipient of God's grace brings with it a higher standard of God's expectation. Now this should make us to think, shouldn't it? It should cause us to pause and consider our own circumstances. You know, we're not only the recipients of God's grace, but we're also among some of the most prosperous and powerful people in the history of the world. How much do we have to to return in gratitude to God for His kindness to us? Advent is actually really a a time in which we have an opportunity to to self-reflect a bit, to evaluate the nature of our own social compassion. What are the, the things that we do to express our proclaimed devotion? This is what God calls us to. God's angry when His people presume upon His favor, but He's also angry when His people ignore His pleading, This is interesting. In chapter four, he goes on and he explains, he says, this is God speaking to the people. He says, I gave you empty stomachs and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. And then he says, I withheld rain from you when harvest was near, fields dried up, people thirsted, yet you have not returned to me. And then he says, I struck your your gardens and vineyards with disease and sent locusts to devour your trees, yet you've not returned to me. He says, I sent plagues among you and killed your young men with the sword by the hands of your enemies, and yet you've not returned to me. Interesting. Do Do you hear the common theme there? You know, so often we blame hardship on Satan. Something horrible comes into your life, whatever it is, blight and disease or or financial distress or death even and we want to blame the enemy Satan for everything that goes wrong and surely he is delighted with all that goes wrong and often has a hand in it but don't be so quick to blame that one what's Amos saying who's at work behind all this it's God he's saying God struck you with disease God killed your men God did these things, and yet you refused to return to Him. You didn't pay attention when He called to you. Don't quickly label hardship with spiritual reasons. I mean, injury and death and disease and financial troubles arise for all kinds of of reasons. We live in a broken world. There are all kinds of troubles. But don't waste the opportunity that hardship brings. Hear when God pleads and return. So what does God want? He's angry, we recognize here, but what what is it that he wants? In chapter 7, Amos gives a series of of short visions that he sees as a prophet and one of those visions goes like this. He says the Lord was standing by a wall built true to plumb, that is it was straight, with a plumb line in his hand. I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. What does that mean? Do you know what a plumb line is? It's a a string with a heavy weight at the bottom. And if you hold it up high, that heavy weight is going to point directly to the center of the earth. It's going to make for a straight wall. If the plumb line matches the wall, if the wall matches the plumb line, you know that it's straight. What is it that God wants? He wants His people to measure up to the gospel. He wants His people to reflect with straightness and accuracy exactly what it is that they have received from him. He had chosen them. He had saved them out of Egypt. He had given them the promised land. What is it that he wants? He wants for them to measure up to the gospel. Chapter 5, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Your gathering together. I'm not interested. Even your music, he says to them, I don't want to hear it. But let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos, here in chapter 5, had just asked the Israelites this question. He had said, Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness for you, not light. Because given the status of your hearts completely lacking in social compassion god says i hate I, I hate it when i despise when you gather together to feign religiosity it's a waste of my time don't even bother he suggests away with the noise of your songs can you imagine that i mean we we really enjoy our musicians here they're they're wonderful they're fantastically talented and they provide us with amazing music that we enjoy and we sing to the music to to lesser or greater degrees of of robustness, depending on how we're feeling on a particular Sunday, perhaps. Can you imagine God saying, just quit? Don't even bother, people. You're wasting the talent of these musicians because your hearts are rusty, dusty garbage. That's what He's suggesting to them. How will they measure up? How will they measure up to the gospel as God calls them to do? Well, verse 24 let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. There, there, there are two important ideas here. These two words are so critical in the Old Testament in Hebrew thinking. Righteousness, the Hebrew word tzedakah, is a word that, that suggests a standard of right and equitable relationships between people, no matter their social position in the world. That's irrelevant. And justice... The Hebrew word mishpat is the word, It's justice is, is the concrete action taken to correct injustice and create righteousness, to create equitable and just and proper relationships between people regardless of their social position in the world. This is what God wants to see. These things are to characterize God's people like a river, like water that always flows down to the lowest place and fills in the lowest spot, Right? And they're to characterize God's people like an ever-flowing stream. Now, the the Israelites would have understood what he's alluding to there because in Israel, much of the countryside is dry and arid, and there are these empty valleys called Wadi, W-A-D-I, Wadi, which are dry most of the year, but when the rainy season comes, they fill up with water, and the water rushes through them like a flood, and then they dry out again. Amos is saying, Your justice and righteousness is not to be like that. It's not just to come, you know, during a season and then it goes away. It comes during Advent when people are feeling charitable and then it dries up in January and February. That's not what I want. I want an ever-flowing stream like the mighty Mississippi, always flowing down of justice and righteousness. This is what God wants. And yet in chapter 6, Amos has to say this. He says, do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen. Can you, can you hear the, and see the imagery there? Do horses run on rocky crags? Can you imagine a horse galloping up over a, an outcropping of rocks that are jagged and sticking up everywhere? A horse would never do that. Why? Because it would break its legs. And would a farmer take his oxen team with his plow up onto that rocky crag and try to plow it? It's absurd, isn't it? He would never do that. And Amos says, but you've done that. How? You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness by taking advantage of the poor. This was Jeroboam's Israel. He had brought in money for the country, but only a few profited from it. A relative few became wealthy. There was an extreme difference between who were those who were rich and those who were poor. There were the wealthy and there were the poor. and that was it. You know, many would suggest that that's similar to, to society today, that that's how things have become. And it's completely contrary to the principle of God's design for His people in Scripture. Jubilee is, is that thing that we read about in, in Scripture in which after a certain number of years, the 50th year, a year of Jubilee, and, and property is returned to people who had to give it up, and things are restored so that people can recover from their, their downtrodden state because God cares about all his people. It's not capitalism, and it's not socialism. It's not any-ism. It's simply the gospel of God with a theme of true religion, which is generosity. That's what God is after. And the theme runs throughout the New Testament. Obviously, we, we know Jesus tells his disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy. It's kind of a tough one for us, isn't it? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Be generous to those who have need. Paul says those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and snares that plunge them into ruin and destruction. And James tells us that religion that's pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of his kingdom, but you have dishonored the poor man," James says. The theme is throughout Scripture, isn't it? It's a, it's a critical theme for us to recognize there's so many ways for us to honor the poor man in our society today. There's just countless ways. Union Gospel mission here in Dallas is one of the, the most beautiful expressions of the effort to honor the poor man that I've seen. Certainly that's here in Dallas. It's a beautiful effort to not just give a hand out, but to give a hand up. Behind every door is a great ministry that we speak of often. John mentioned it in the announcements earlier, working in the apartments over here nearby and, and two other apartment complexes in Dallas, South Dallas, where they're, where they're reaching out to give a hand up to people and not just a hand out. And for the nation's refugee outreach, is it work to do the same thing? There's so many efforts. Those are just a few that our church has some contact with, but there are so many efforts. To do these very, these very things, if you've got resources, then to not share them is unjust and unrighteous. What God wants is for his people to emulate the gospel of grace by sharing their strength with the weak. And so it's unexpected to so many when Jesus describes the last day, as you heard earlier in the, the New Testament reading. And he explains to, to those that God is, is declaring, I don't know you. He, he says, I was hungry, but you ignored me. I was thirsty, but you ignored me. I was naked, but you ignored me. I was a stranger, but you ignored me. I was sick, but you ignored me. I was a prisoner, but you ignored me. And the answer to that is, well, when, Lord? We, we didn't know when. And, of course, what does he say? Well, when you refuse to do those things for the least of my brother's. You refused to do it for me. You've ignored the needy. You've hoarded your wealth. You've preserved your power. And God says, If you know my promises, this is not what will characterize you, but rather righteousness and justice. What is it that God has promised? Well, Amos tells us he's promised an advent. He's promised a coming. He's promised a first advent and a second advent, Amos suggests to us, and it's coming through the church. You know God's redemptive plan is far, far bigger than just getting Israel to behave in the 8th century B.C. And it's far, far bigger than just getting us to behave now and here. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Surely the the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, for I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. What's God saying here? What is, he, what is He suggesting? What's He promising? He's giving us a picture, the, the, the sieve that He's describing here. God is saying, I'll give the command, and I'll shake Israel among the nations like grain in a sieve. When a farmer would shake the grain in the sieve, what he was after was to see the grain, the smaller kernels of the grain, fall through the sieve and leave the pebbles, the rocks, and the garbage behind. And that's what God is picturing here. That's what he intends to do. God will separate the true from the false, he will separate his people from those who are not his people, he'll separate the compassionate from the uncompassionate. Matthew 25 gave that picture, and Amos 9 promises at least these two things. It promises a restored kingdom and a restored world. In chapter 9, verse 11, we read this, in that day I will restore David's fallen tent. That's what God promises. In the day in which I shake Israel in a sieve, I will restore David's all intent. Now, what does he mean by that? Think about it this way. In our country, we we have political favorites. You know, you, you have probably all of you could think of your favorite president of the United States, whether it's a current one or not. You can think back on many years of 40 some presidents, and, and and you maybe have had this thought before, you know, if we could just go back to that president, then we would be a more united country, because that president was someone who was more Pleasing to a broader range of people, more uh, in tune to the way that our people are thinking. And so, if we could just go back, you know, what, fill in the blank, what president is it? John F. Kennedy? You know, so many, so many people would say, JFK, if we could just go back to Kennedy, then things would be much better than they are now. Or maybe if we could go back to Theodore Roosevelt, to Teddy Roosevelt, the teddy bear. Right? If we could just have the teddy bear to be our president again, then we'd, well, we'd all be united. Or maybe it's Grover Cleveland. You know, we did try that with him. He became president a second time, and it didn't work. Right? What about Thomas Jefferson? Maybe he could unite us. He was not a good theologian, okay, but he was a pretty good president. And so maybe if we could just have him to be our president again, you know how the thinking goes, right? For the Israelites, it wasn't a president, it was a king, and it wasn't Solomon, it was David. If we could just have David back, if we could just have David to rule over us, then everything would be okay, we'd be united again, and God's promise is, I will restore that. I will restore David's fallen tents. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of Israel's favored king. And he promises, I'll build it as it used to be. And he says, it will include, and here's the unexpected part, it will include the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. Now, the Israelites who heard this are now having complete cognitive dissonance because they want David back, but they don't want Edom Edom is one of those countries neighboring nearby that God cursed at the beginning of the prophecy. And now God is saying, the remnant of Edom? Do you mean there are people in Edom who, yes, there are people in Edom who, and of all the nations who bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things, this restored kingdom will overcome every social division that's ever occurred, racial or economic or class divisions, whatever it is, it's, it will overcome them. That's why right now your expressions of religious devotion must be proven by acts of social compassion. The kingdom of God will be restored. But the second thing he promises is this. He will restore the world. He will restore a material world. Listen to this, what else Amos says in chapter 9. He says, The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter, Overtaken by the one treading grapes. Now, can you follow that? I know that biblical language, proverbial kind of language, sometimes kind of hard to picture, but it's very poetic. What's happening? If the reaper, the one reaping the harvest, is overtaken by the one planting, what's happening? The harvest has taken so long to bring in that it's now planting season again. There's too much to harvest. There's so much we can't possibly bring it all in. And so now it's planting season again, and we're not even done with what we already grew. And the the planter by the one treading grapes, the one's treading grapes is coming up on the one who's planting grapes for next season. And you see what, you see what the picture is? There's so much abundance in this new season of the world that no one will be without, with want. The harvest will last so long that the, he goes on, he says, the new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. In other words, he's saying abundance will come so naturally in this new restored world that it it will hardly even take any effort. It will just come to you. Can you imagine that? He says, I'll bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them never to be uprooted again. Now, surely Amos is alluding to the future exile of God's people and then their return from exile to the land but that's not all he's referring to he's alluding to much much more amos is saying they will never be uprooted again he's saying there is an advent to come yes there is a messiah yet to come but there is a second advent beyond that he will come again and that's what we look forward to we look back on one advent he already came We look forward to another Advent, and when that Advent comes,